Welcome, Brent. Morning, everybody. Let me just get myself organised here. Bring my various items with. So as I was um, praying and reflecting on what I should preach about today, this my first sermon at Outlook, I found myself kind of confused as to what direction I should go. I'm sure that you will appreciate that this is bizarre for both me and you, um, that I should find myself as your pastor kind of before we really know each other. Um, you've probably read what the board had to say. We, I've had some good initial conversations with some of you, but the reality is that this is really just the start of our relationship. Um, and so I Upon reflecting on that, I thought back to a mentor of mine uh, and the way that he started at his, one of his churches. And what he did is he took the first um, sermon to introduce himself, to give some information about himself, to talk about his vision for the church. And I thought about that, but if I am totally honest, I didn't, it didn't sit well with me um, to do that. I don't... I don't mean to denigrate in any way what he chose to do in that case, but the way I see it is that ever since I started preaching, my goal has been to um, stick closely to what the scriptures say. Uh, my motto is really that uh, people don't really need to hear about me and what I think, they need to hear about God and what he thinks. And so uh, my, my job really is just to be his mouthpiece, to kind of constantly say with John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he can increase. And I think if we think about it, the the reality is at the bottom of it all, I'm not your pastor, Jesus is, just like he's my pastor. Jesus is the great shepherd that we all follow. I think that's helpful. I think it takes the pressure off Uh, both for me and for you. It takes the pressure off me because I don't have to be the perfect pastor because Jesus is. And that's useful because I can guarantee you that in these shoes are feet of clay. I can guarantee you that I'm not the perfect pastor. I'm going to say things that are maybe going to offend. I'm going to do things that are going to disappoint. And whilst uh, I can rest in the fact that Jesus is our true pastor... I think the same is true for you. You can come in recognition that I am not the perfect pastor, but Jesus is. So this week, in um, Through the Word, Through the Year, the book that we're looking at, we've, we have been reading, if you're following along, we've been reading through um, the years of preparation, I think uh, John Stott calls them, I called them Jesus' childhood, his infant and childhood years, the years before he started his official ministry. And as I reflected on uh, these passages, I found three truths in these passages that I think are really helpful for us as we reflect on Christ, our perfect pastor. The first is that God, uh, that Christ is truly human. We see in those passages that through the incarnation, Jesus came to be truly like us. He came to be a human being. Not only that, we see there that Jesus is the true human. And so what I mean when I say that is that he is the demonstration of what it looks like, what it truly means to be human. And finally, we see in there that Jesus is truly God. He's not just a good man. 
He's not just a good teacher, but in fact, he is, in a very real sense, God in flesh. And so those are the three truths that we're going to look at today, that we're going to reflect on as we think about Christ, who is our perfect pastor. But as we do that, let's open with a word of prayer. God, I give you thanks that whilst it might be a bizarre experience for me and for each of us to be here today, Lord, we know that it's not bizarre to you. God, you superintend each thing. We pray that as we look to your word now, God, might we be reminded of some very key truths about you. God, by your spirit, prepare our hearts for the word you have for us today, uh, individually and corporately as your church. God, my prayer is that you would help me to get out of the way so that you can be seen more clearly. Bless this time we spend together in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to be um, jumping around a little bit today. I'm not going to look at one particular passage, but we are going to spend a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you are one to play along at home, if you have your Bible there, uh, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start in Luke 2. Verses 40 uh, to 52. I will put it up on the screen. I I like to read uh, and use the ESV. Uh, I find that it's quite an easy-to-read translation whilst also being pretty accurate, but you can follow along in whatever your preferred translation is. And so the words that you see on the screen, they'll be from the ESV. So starting in verse 40, it says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know about it, but they supposed him to be in the group. They went, uh, but supposing him rather to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. I think it's useful probably to pause here uh, as we see Jesus' parents uh, looking a little bit slack. Um, But the reality is that they weren't slack. There's not a lot of detail about this, but scholars tell us that basically people travelled in large groups, usually large family groups. Quite often they would separate men from women within these groups, and so perhaps Mary and Joseph assumed Jesus to be with the other Within the, within the group, or maybe they just assumed that he was within the great crowd that they were with. Uh, we don't really know, uh, but the reality is that we find in verse uh, 46 that Jesus is in the temple listening to the teacher, so we don't have to call child services. Um, Jesus' parents weren't doing anything wrong. Okay, unpause. And when he heard, uh, when all who, all, and all who heard him, that's, being, that's Jesus, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. There's not a a ton of scripture about Jesus' childhood. We don't have a lot of information about it. But we can be certain that God has given us exactly the information that he wants us to have. And so we don't need to uh, kind of surmise a whole bunch of things about Jesus' childhood, which is what people quite often are prone to do. We don't have to do that. And in this passage, which is one of the main childhood passages that we have, God affirms very clearly for us that Jesus is truly human. He is indeed a man in the flesh. We can read in verse 40, for example, that the child Jesus grew and became strong. He didn't just kind of pop up as a 30-year-old and begin ministry. He grew and became strong. Verse 52, again, we see that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. In verse 44, uh, once Jesus' parents had realized that he was missing, they searched for him. Despite their knowledge of who Jesus was, um, they still recognized him as their child in need of care and protection. And in fact, in verse 48, uh, we see that they are in great distress. Now, Jesus uh, questions this, but the reality is that they see Jesus as their son, truly human, a child in need of protection. Now, the reason that this matters to us, the reason it matters that Jesus is truly human, is because if Jesus is truly human, then he can understand our human concerns. In the words of Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus was truly, is truly human, and so he can sympathize with our human frailty. He gets it, to put it into our terminology. I think Jesus' humanity would have been self-evident to the people that lived in the same time as him. But we know from Scripture that it didn't take very long for people to start questioning the humanity of Christ. In fact, if we see uh, the letters of First and Second John seem to have been written to churches in which false teachers were teaching or questioning Jesus' uh, humanity. Second John verse 7, for example, says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, this is the Apostle John writing, who walked with Jesus. And yet he is already needing to uh, rebuke these teachers who are questioning Jesus' humanity. And in our zeal to respect Jesus as God, not a bad zeal, and yet sometimes we can, uh, I've written here, we can forget that he was human. We can, we can um, at times I think we sanitize Jesus. We, what I mean by that is that we cleanse him of all the, of all the muck, of all the dirt, of all the struggles of our human existence. We usually feel uneasy about uh, thinking about Jesus doing and being involved in really, truly human things. 
In our zeal to respect God's, uh, Jesus' God nature, what we sometimes do is we create uh, the Jesus of those tacky Jesus movies from a few decades ago, that kind of perpetually smiling kind of uh, otherworldly figure. He's kind of transient, like he might just kind of disappear in a puff of smoke at any moment. I read a wonderful quote uh, this week by Martin Luther. I think it paints a picture well for us. He said that the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, is proof that God is not against us. We live in a fallen world. We can look around us and we can see the damage that sin brings everywhere. And as we do so, I think we can start to wonder why God could be bothered with humanity at all. But Jesus shows us that humanity will not always be like this. Jesus shows us that human beings are special in the eyes of God. We know this for a fact because Jesus became truly human. But Hebrews 4.15, that passage I referred to before, concludes by telling us that whilst Jesus can sympathise with our weakness, as one who was tempted as we are, he did so without sin. Jesus lived a truly human life, and yet he did it without sin. In our passage from Luke, in uh, verse 40, tells us that he grew and became strong, and the favour of God was upon him. Whilst he grew, whilst he uh, became strong, he also experienced the favour of God. He remained without sin. Jesus was indeed a human child, and yet he had wisdom such that, uh, as verse 47 tells us, those who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. We read in verse 52 uh, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Uh, John Stott, in the book, uh, Through the Bible Through the Year, raises and answers a, a good question, and he said it so well that I thought I would just quote him directly instead of ruining it by trying to reword it. And so here you have it. John Stott says, If Jesus grew in these areas, does it not inevitably mean that he was previously imperfect? No. We are claiming not that Jesus jumped straight from infancy to adulthood, but that he grew, and that at each stage, he was perfect for that stage. For example, to say that he grew in favour with God does not mean that he was previously out of favour, but that at each stage he pleased God in accordance with his age. To insist on this growth, he concludes, is to guarantee the authentic humanness of Jesus. We've already said that Jesus is truly human. And so we have to insist that he grew in order for him to be authentically human. But we also hold that whilst he was tempted, he did not sin. And so this means that whilst Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding, he did so, uh, as he did so, uh, he, he did it uh, and, and represents what it means to be a human in loving relationship and submission to God at each stage of his development. He shows us what true humanity was always supposed to look like. 
My theology lecturer when I was at Bible college used to talk about uh, Jesus as the blueprint for humanity. He was... He shows us what humanity is supposed to look like. And so he's truly human, but he's also what I've called the true human. I'm hoping that's not confusing. If it is, feel free to let me know. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Christ, we have a physical representation of what it truly means to reflect the image of God, to truly live as God intends us to live. And so as our perfect pastor, Christ models for us what it is to be human, and we should emulate him in every regard. Ephesians 5 tells us to be imitators of Christ. But what does that really mean? What does it really mean to say that Christ uh, was uh, that Christ is our demonstration. Certainly, I think we can look to the various uh, interactions that he had with people. Uh, for example, we can look at the interaction he had with the woman at the well in John 4 and see what it means to challenge sin in love. But as I was reading for this sermon, I read an insight by someone called Neil Wilson, um, and he makes a far more fundamental and a far more hard-hitting point, at least for me. He says that Jesus demonstrated for us that temptation can be resisted. I'm going to press out slightly from Jesus' childhood years uh, into Matthew 4, where he's led into the desert to be tempted by Satan. I'm not going to read that passage. You can read it uh, if you're following along. But we see there that Jesus faced temptation, but he did not give in. So how did he do that? How did he face temptation without giving in? Well, he did that by knowing and obeying the word of God. Ephesians 6 uh, verse 17 tells us that the word of God is a sword for spiritual combat. And in Matthew 4, we see Jesus demonstrate that for us. My life verse is James 1.22. It says, Do not merely listen to the word, And so deceive yourselves, do what it says. I love James because he just says things as they are. There's no flowery language. He just tells you how it is. Jesus was faced with temptation, but he did not give in. We learn through him what it means to be the true human. And we learn that we can resist temptation through the power of his word. Not by just knowing what his word says, but by doing what it says as well. So far we said that uh, Jesus' younger years demonstrate for us that he is truly human, uh, that he really was a person, that he is the true human. He's a great example, or the example for us, of what humanity is supposed to look like. But the reality is that it takes more than a human being to save us from our sins. Jesus must be truly God as well. Look with with me, if you will, to Matthew 1, the birth of Jesus, starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
before they came together, she, found, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being just a man, uh, excuse me, being a just man rather, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wayne Grudem writes one of the most well-known theology textbooks there is, and he says this about these passages. He says, God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the power uh, by the powerful work of the holy spirit Jesus was truly human we know this because he had a human mother Mary but he is also truly God he was conceived in the womb it says in Matthew by the work and the power of the holy spirit people tend to, can downplay the virgin birth at times uh, but I, I just sim- we just simply can't do that because it's a key concept in terms of how we understand the message of the gospel. Because we believe that human beings cannot save ourselves from sin. We require a saviour. And the virgin birth affirms for us, it shows us that humans need redeeming. We cannot uh, save ourselves from our sins. And so in Matthew uh, 1, 21, Mary and Joseph are told to call the baby Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. It means God is saviour. It's not enough for Jesus to simply demonstrate right living for us. It's not enough for him to just be uh, a perfect person. We need a saviour to die in our place so that we can be forgiven for our sins. We need Jesus to be truly God as well as truly human. And so it was so. God made a way for Jesus to be God in flesh, the saviour we need, as well as truly human, the high priest who understands and sympathises with our weaknesses, our perfect pastor. This is the good news that we celebrate in the message of the gospel. Christ came, God in flesh, not only to demonstrate, but also uh, to demonstrate good living, but also to initiate salvation, the redemption from sin. We cannot save ourselves. But through his birth and eventual death on the cross, God made a way for us to be redeemed, for us to be forgiven. And maybe you're hearing this today, but you haven't yet experienced what I'm talking about. You haven't yet yet experienced salvation from sin. 
Maybe you get that Jesus is a good example to us. Maybe you follow what I say when I say that he is our perfect pastor, a true good shepherd who we emulate. But to experience salvation from sin, you also need to accept Christ as saviour. And we, we would urge you to do that today. And so if that is you, if you find yourself in that place and you want to take that step, you can see me or you can see the friend who invited you along or you can find somebody else who looks friendly and local uh, and talk to them. We would love to talk to you about that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that in your wisdom you made it possible that Jesus might come in the flesh, that he might be truly human, that he might demonstrate true humanity to us, and yet that he also might be God incarnate. Father, without your action, we cannot be saved. But through uh, the incarnation and the eventual death of Christ on the cross, we give you thanks that we can be. Father, remind us afresh of our salvation through your grace. Remind us afresh that this is a work that you have done and that we simply receive. God, for those of us who don't yet know you, I pray that you would be at work by your spirit in our hearts. God, reveal yourself, we pray, not just as a good man, not just as a perfect man even, but as God incarnate who saves from sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.